Father, we thank you for your love for us, the love with which you rescued us, the love with which you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, for us. We praise you. And God, we pray now that we would listen to your word, for you not only have rescued us, but you have wonderful plans for us. Help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last year at Cornerstone, we spent about four months going through the book of Romans, at least the first eight chapters of it. Uh, We took some breaks in there to do some Christmas things, a couple Old Testament books, and an Easter series, and now we're going to get back to Romans 9 through 16, and it's probably going to take us a good four months to go through it from here. So that's where we're heading from here, Romans 9 through 16. You'll have plenty of time to read and reread that wonderful section of Scripture on your own. Uh, Don't just take my word for it. Read it on your own. Let the Holy Spirit speak directly to your heart as you read it and study it as well. Now, hopefully... You all remember everything that I said about Romans 1 through 8, right? And and if I were to just ask you to quote from memory what I said was the key verse from Romans 1 through 8, you could all just say it right now, right? Maybe? Okay, okay. No, I I don't expect that much retention from what I say. But uh, what I did say that I, I hope that you remember is that Romans 1 through 8 can be summed up in one word, gospel. It's the wonderful news of how God loved us so much that he sent Jesus for us, and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can have forgiveness and eternal life. But as Paul makes abundantly clear in Romans 1-8, through that all happens through faith, that, that God does his work, and what he expects from us as our response is a response of faith, giving our lives to him, trusting that he has good plans for us, and following him. Now, in chapter 9, what happens then is that Paul wears his heart on his sleeve and he laments the fact that so many of his Jewish brothers and sisters have rejected Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We'll see how Paul wanted Israel to be saved, but something went wrong. So chapter 9 explains what went wrong, but it also gives us the key to understanding how how God wants things to work. So I'm going to spend two Sundays walking through chapter 9, and today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first half of Romans 9, as well as I'm going to jump a little bit ahead and and look at some of the last verses of Romans 9 as well. But here's a quick overview of Romans 9 for the next two Sundays. Uh, My sermon title you can see is Some In, Some Out, and no, that's not talking about my basketball game this week, because that title would have been a few in and most out, but... uh, What this is talking about is how some people were insiders to God's covenant promises and some were outsiders. And that's what Romans 9 walks us through. And my sermon today has four main parts, so why don't we go ahead and start with number one there, which is Paul's heart. So this is the Apostle Paul who wrote this book, and now he's, uh, just like I said, kind of wearing his heart on his sleeve. And he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now again, remember how good the gospel is, but then remember how much Paul cared for the people around him. And and he says there in in verse 2 that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. 
It was so sad that Paul says amazingly in verse 3 that he wished that he could be cursed or cut off from Christ for the sake of his people, the Israelites. Isn't that amazing? That he looked at them so lovingly and, and if he could, would make the trade for himself, would make a sacrifice of himself for his people that they might have salvation in Christ. Now how should we take that? Would Paul really make that trade? Well, for one, I think there's something going on here. Paul knew that he couldn't make that sacrifice. There's only one sacrifice for our sins, Jesus Christ. So Paul couldn't do that for his people. Even if he wished, even if he tried, he couldn't do it. I can't do it for anybody. You can't do it for anybody. There's only one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And I think Paul knew that. Um, But also, this scene reminds me of another scene in the Old Testament when Moses asked if he could be blotted out of God's book. Remember the time during the golden calf incident? where the people had sinned greatly against the Lord, and, and, and Moses was talking to God, and he said, blot me out of your book. Don't carry it out against them. Blot me out of your book. And God's response in Exodus 32:33 was this, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. See, that's the way sin works. Sin separates us from God. And if we're not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, then we're not forgiven. And that's, that, that means then that the only solution to our sin problem is not for Paul to die for us, not for anybody else to do anything for us, but for Jesus Christ, for his death for us. That's the only solution. And sadly to Paul, he knew that Israel was lost because so many of them had rejected Jesus. They were lost even though according to verses 4 and 5, they had the inside track to salvation. Uh, Paul listed eight things in those verses that should have helped the Israelites know that God sent Jesus for them. Now, just a quick note here. Uh, I would love to spend like 30 minutes just diving into the history of verses 4 through 5, but I really do kind of try to keep my sermons not like four hours long. So uh, in light of that, we're actually not going to talk too much about verses 4 and 5, but I do want to say this, that even for us who come in as outsiders, we used to be outsiders to the gospel, um, very few people in here, probably if, even if any, were, were Jews and came in as insiders to the gospel. We came in as outsiders, but even so, our faith stands on the promises given to us in the Old Testament through God's people, through Israel. So please know that. Our salvation is rooted in the truth of what God did in the Old Testament. But for some reason, so many of the Israelites in Paul's day rejected Jesus. Why? Well, like I said, chapter 9 will tell us what went wrong. And make no mistake about it, God didn't do anything wrong. He gave wonderful promises. Paul had already mentioned those promises there in verse 4. And to God's promises, Paul now turns in verses 6 through 9. And I want to read for you uh, on my second point here, uh, God's promises. Verse 6, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. 
Now, verse 6 is one of the keys for understanding chapter 9. And first of all, it reminds us that God's word doesn't fail. That word fail there can be used of a ship that runs aground. So picture a ship. It wants to keep sailing, or it wants to dock safely, but instead sometimes a ship runs aground and it's disastrous. Well, God's word never does that. Um, I appreciate the Gideon so much because they, it's like every time I see them, they remind us of these verses, this verse here in Isaiah 55:11, where God says, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word is powerful. Uh, at Friday night at the uh, Pastor's Appreciation Banquet at the Gideon's Convention, they told a story of a kid who had received not even a full Gideon's Bible, but uh, he had picked up one page of the Bible that had been ripped out of somebody else's Bible, was reading it, and, and found a Gideon and said, tell me who this man is. And that boy, and I believe his father, put their faith in Christ. One page of the Bible. Um, God's word does not fail. So that's not the problem here in verse 6. But in verse 6 it tells us then, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You see, being a true Israelite wasn't simply a matter of having Israelite parents. Paul said something similar in chapter 2 when he said that circumcision wasn't merely a physical deal. It, it was a physical deal, but true circumcision was circumcision of the heart. So a person couldn't stand before God and just simply say, hey, I'm an Israelite. Come on, let me in. And let me just give a side note here. It's not going to work for us to go before God and say, hey, come on, God, didn't you see? I was born in a Christian house. I even went to church pretty much every Sunday, unless the Vikings were on early or something. But uh, it's not going to work to say that because it's not about what we can do. It's about faith in Christ. Don't miss that. Don't, don't even go up to God. Please don't go up to God and say, I was in Pastor Eric's church. No. It's faith in Christ. That's our connection to God, faith in Christ. And Paul goes on to explain this by talking about Abraham's son, Isaac. God had given Abraham this amazing promise in Genesis 12 too, uh, which I, I consider this passage to be the most important passage in the Old Testament. God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Now it's an interesting promise to give to somebody who is old and childless. How is Abraham going to be made into a great nation if he's old, his wife is old, and they have no kids? How's it going to happen? Well, as the years went by and Abraham still had no son, there's a point in there where he took matters into his own hand and fathered a child not with his wife Sarah, but with his wife's servant, Hagar. And from that transaction came Ishmael. It's like Abraham heard God's promise and, and thought that maybe God wasn't doing his part to bring things along, so Abraham just kind of came in and helped things along himself with human effort. Ishmael was born in a very human way and it didn't work. Ishmael was not the child of the promise. Ishmael was a child of Abraham, but he was not a child of the promise. Now eventually God did bring about the child of the promise. When Abraham and Sarah were both even older, God blessed them with the child Isaac. But those two children stand as a contrast. I want to put that contrast up here. The contrast between human effort and God's promise. Human effort is what we can do on our own. God's promise is what brings about the true blessings. So 
So this time, uh, it's kind of interesting that Ishmael was actually older than Isaac. And usually in the Old Testament, the older child was the one who had the privileged position. But not this time, because this time it was the child of the promise. And listen to verse 8. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And for us, the application has to do with faith. You see, we can actually get in on this promise of God through faith. I think that's the big thing. I, I was thinking about what's, what's... I have a big idea later that we'll get to, uh, but overall, this idea of what we really need to understand from the first part of Romans 9 is that if we want to be insiders to God's promise, it happens through faith. Look how Galatians 3.29 says it. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or offspring and heirs according to the promise. Do you see that? The promise given to Abraham is a promise that we can get in on. How do we get in on it? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So this promise was about God bringing a people to himself. And there's a pattern then that we see in verses 6 through 9. Those who are insiders are people who are children of the promise, not people who take things into their own hands. Romans 4.16 says it. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. And then back to verse 6. This helps us understand it. When Paul says, um, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, it's talking about this idea that there has always been within Israel a smaller subset that we could call true Israel. The people who truly had faith in God and in his promises. You see, Ishmael was born to Abraham, but he wasn't an insider. He was not eventually part of Israel. Isaac, though, was. He was the child of the promise. Okay, from here, the story moves on to another pair of brothers in which the younger brother, again, received the privileged position. And then the story is also going to tell us about the difference between the Israelites and Pharaoh. And it has to do with insiders and outsiders again. And it has to do with a hotly debated theological word, election. Okay, let me read for you the verses, 10 through 18. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, some of you out there know all about the debate between uh, the, the debate over the words election, or if we were to back up one chapter, we could include the word predestination. Uh, some of you could tell me exactly where you stand on that. Others of you have no idea about this debate, and uh, for those of you, maybe I apologize for bringing anything up here. Um, but I do want to address the debate today, but I want to tell you where I'm going to land before I address the debate. Uh, here at Cornerstone Church, as well as in the Evangelical Free Church of America, that's our denomination, the EFCA, we have agreed to disagree on this issue. There are two sides to the debate with kind of a twist in the middle, um, and we have just agreed to disagree on this. We have said, as long as you are scriptural about it, because that's the key thing for us, 
And, and that's one of the main things I want you to hear today too. As long as you are biblical, as long as you are guided by Scripture, we don't come to Scripture with our ideas and then look for Scripture to confirm our ideas. We humble ourselves before Scripture and let it tell us. But we believe on this debate that you can land on either side. So I've got a picture here to help you see this. Uh, is that, does that show up big enough there? Can you tell what that is? Um, I should have actually brought in an ice cream cone machine. I apologize for not doing that. But uh, let's talk ice cream for a moment. Um, I grew up thinking that chocolate was flavored ice cream and vanilla was plain. So, of course, I got chocolate. Um, but then I kind of realized over the years that I kind of liked twists. Uh, and I, I think what I really liked about it was that there was vanilla in it because what I have now come to the conclusion to and I have now landed on that I prefer vanilla and I prefer vanilla so much that even if I were given the option of twist I would choose vanilla even over twist because I prefer it now here's the deal when my family goes to a restaurant and there's a machine like that, I'm going for vanilla, but it doesn't matter to me what the rest of my family picks. You can go ahead and pick chocolate if you want, for some reason, and the kids usually pick twist because that's, you know, uh, fun to do, but it doesn't matter to me. You know, just, hey, let's all have dessert, I'm going to do vanilla, you can do what you want to do. Now, on this specific theological issue of election, which I'll explain in a moment, here at Cornerstone and in our denomination, we kind of just set up the ice cream cone machine and again we say as long as you're scriptural about it, you can pick whichever one you want. Now we don't do that with some other issues. For example, the Trinity. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, somehow one God. We believe that. And we're not going to set up the ice cream cone machine and just say, yeah, pick whatever you want. No, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the Word of God as the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. So on those issues, we are not setting up the ice cream cone ma machine. We're, um, but on this issue of election, we have chosen to put out the ice cream cone machine and say, you can choose, and we're not going to fight about it. We're not going to let a debate over Romans 9 separate us. Okay? So in this room, I know of people uh, in our congregation who are on different sides of the fence here, and we are going to choose to agree to disagree on this issue. Okay? Does that, does that make sense? I think that makes sense. Um, so back to Romans 9. Jacob and Esau were twins. Everything about their parents and their conception was identical. So why would God elect one and not the other? Why would God love one and hate the other, like he says in verse 13? Well, when it says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, it's talking about covenant insiders. Jacob was a covenant insider. Esau was a covenant outsider. So that's what it means. God chose one and not the other. And God tells us that he made this choice before the twins were even born or had done anything, good or bad. And that's where the debate comes in. Centers around the word election. Why would God choose Jacob and not Esau? And there are three answers to that question. The Calvinist view... Uh, let me just put that up on the screen here. The Calvinist view, there's also the Arminian view, and then there's the Calminian view, which would be the twist. Okay? So the Calvinist view... Um, I'm glad you like that. Um, in this view, God simply chose one, the, the Calvinist view, God simply chose one and not the other based on nothing that either one had done. It was simply God's choice. Doug Moo, who himself is a Calvinist, describes it this way. Calvinists think that God chooses individuals to be saved based on nothing but his own free decision. 
So Calvinists would look at a verse like verse 16 and say that it doesn't depend on anything that man can will or do, not even on man's faith. God first makes his choice to elect, and because God has made that choice, those people will then necessarily have faith. Similarly, verse 11 specifically mentions that God's choice happened before Jacob and Esau did anything. Okay? So that's the Calvinist view. Um, by the way, I, I forgot to say this. I'm not going to tell you today where I land on this, okay? Uh, and the reason I have done that is not because I don't land somewhere. I definitely land somewhere. Some of you know where I land. I just have chosen not to tell you in the spirit of not battling over this. It's not really fair for me to come up here and say, you can pick whatever you want, but here's my view. Here's the right one. So I'm just not going to do that today. Um, if some of you are really lost in this and you want to talk to me about it, you really want advice, I'd be glad to talk to you individually. Um, but if you want to convert me, that might not be worth any of our time on this. So, okay. Uh, let's move on to the Arminian view. Uh, not the country Armenia, but after a guy whose last name was Arminius. So, in this view, God still made his choice of election, but he did so based on his foreknowledge of who would put their faith in him. And just a quick note here, whether you're Calvinist or Arminian, you have to believe in predestination and election because they are Bible words. Okay? All sides of this debate, if you're going to be biblical, have to believe in predestination and election. Yes, there's some differences in how they uh, define those words, but we all have to believe in them. And here's how Arminians believe in election, specifically in regard to Jacob and Esau. God knew that Esau would despise his birthright. Remember that story? Esau was famished. He came back. He was so hungry. He didn't have any food to eat. He thought he was going to die. His brother had some food. And what did his brother say to him? Hey, I'll, I'll give you some food for your birthright. Now, Esau's birthright was his inheritance as an Israelite. That, that was what was given to him because he was an Israelite. And Esau was so hungry that he said, well, what good is my inheritance if I die? So he gave up his birthright for that food. Now, you could say there, and the Arminians could say it this way, that Esau chose to become an outsider. It was his free choice to say, I don't want what comes with being, part of an, with being an Israelite. I give that up because I want something else. So the Armenian could say God knew ahead of time that Esau would make that decision and therefore he did not elect him. He did not predestine him. Uh, the same thing goes for Pharaoh. Getting back to the Calvinist view, the, uh, the Calvinist could say that God simply chose Israel, but did not choose Pharaoh, and he did that for his own glory. And the, the question comes up, is God being unjust, like it says in verse 14? And the answer is no, because God is the perfect judge. He has his plans in mind, and we cannot talk back to God. He, it was his choice, and therefore it was perfect. That's, that's the Calvinist view. The Arminian view, on the other hand, would say that um, it wasn't just that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says also in Scripture that, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Eight times it says in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Four times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So the Arminian could say that uh, Pharaoh had already initiated this process. He had already made his choice to harden his heart against God. And God just said, okay, if that's the way you want it, then I'll harden your heart. It's kind of like Romans 1, where God gives people over to their sins. So anyways... Um, it's interesting, too, in verse 16, uh, I've already mentioned how the, the Calvinists would say uh, it doesn't depend on man's desire or effort, and they would include in that it doesn't even depend on faith, where the Arminian would look at verse 16 and say, no, faith isn't mentioned there. Uh, it doesn't depend on man's desire or effort, but 
from the rest of the Bible, from the rest of Romans, we know that God gives mercy and compassion to those who have faith. So you see the, the difference. Both people reading the same scripture and just coming to different conclusions based on how you interpret some words in there. And again, we've just agreed to disagree on this. Um, here's what Doug Moo says about Arminians. And he's not an Arminian, but I think he says it well. Arminians believe that God chooses people on the basis of his seeing ahead of time who will believe. And it's just like Romans 8.29 then, where God's foreknowledge comes before predestination. God knew who would, be, would have faith, so he predestined them to salvation. So the debate isn't about who believes in election and predestination and who doesn't. The debate really is how we define these terms. And both can be very biblical, as well as this next view, the Calminian view, which again, that would be the twist. There's nobody named Calminius, by the way. It's just Calvin and Arminian combined together, Calminian. And there's something to be said for this view, because so far I have introduced a tension. Have you felt, has anybody felt tension in here? I, I hope not, but has anybody felt like we're going to, you know, at the end of the service, we're all just going to split into two camps and fight it out? <laughs> no, that's, that's not what we're going to do. But there is a tension. Theologically, there is a tension. And again, let me just say, I apologize to those of you that it's just like going way over your head. Um, this is just kind of a debate that circles around within Christianity, and this, Romans 9, is the place to talk about it, so that's why we're doing it today. Um, my fourth point is going to be much more practical, and we'll, we'll get around to lots of agreement on number four. But let me just get back to the Kelminian view here. Um, the tension is that we know that God elects and predestines, but we also know that man is responsible for his actions. You read the Bible and you see both of those things very clearly. The tension is, we just don't always know how those things work together. Um, the Calvinist thinks they know, the Arminist thinks they know, the Calminian, and there's something to be said for this, just kind of throws his hands up in the air and says, I don't know. God knows, and eventually I'll know, but right now, on this side of eternity, we may never know. And they just want to hold these two truths in tension. And let me show you the two truths two verses here from John 6. In John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But a little bit earlier in verse 29, Jesus said, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So it is both true that God must draw people, but also that man must respond by faith. Both of those things are true. They are attention. And the Calminian again just says, I don't know, but I believe both of those things. I don't know how I believe both of those things necessarily, but I do. And it's okay. I think, again, there's something to be said for this because um, they're, they're simply taking Scripture at its word as truthful. Okay. Um, let me wrap this up now, this point three, with some things that we can all agree on. Okay? Let's, everybody get into the middle row here. Let's have a big group hug. Okay? Um, six, six things that we can all agree on. First, we must all believe in election and predestination. Like I said, those are Bible words. We are Bible people here. The Bible will inform us on our theology. Uh, and let me just say this on this point. Um, if any of you have put your faith in Christ, it is because God drew you. Okay? I don't want to hear any testimonies out there that forget that side of it. That if any single one of you put your faith in Christ, God was at work long before you were even born to put things in place to draw you to himself. Okay, second, none of us deserve salvation. We all came into this as sinners who deserve punishment. God in his mercy sent his son for us. Third, God is completely just in all he does. We don't always 
No, we don't have heaven's view of things, but I can assure you God is just in all that he does, and the more we get to know him, the more we will understand that. Fourth, God determines who is saved, but we all must respond to the gospel by faith. That's the two sides of the tension there, and we have to believe both sides. Salvation is God's work, but we are to put our faith in Christ. Five, all of this is for God's glory. Uh, That comes out very clearly, especially in those verses uh, 15 through 18. God does these things for his glory, and sometimes we don't understand it, but it is for his glory. And then a sixth bonus one that I thought of after I put this PowerPoint together. Predestination is a gift for believers. Every time you see it in the Bible, we're supposed to, as believers, look back at it and rejoice. So think about that. God chose some and he didn't choose others. If if you have faith in Christ, it's because he chose you. And it is a gift from God to you. Okay. So um, let's move on now to point number four. Faith. Uh, I didn't put this in the bulletin. And if you have your Bibles here, you're going to want to flip to verses 30 through 33. Um, As I said at the beginning, I think the end of Romans 9 explains the chapter. So through Romans 9, we see some who are insiders to God's promise and some who are outsiders. And yes, there's debate, but what we can all agree on is that insiders are people who have faith and outsiders are people who do not have faith in Christ. Uh, Think of it this way. Romans 1 through 8 is all about the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is that we, we are made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That doesn't change in Romans 9. So Romans 9 is simply telling us a little bit more about this story. Um, And what it tells us at the end of Romans 9 is that the Gentiles obtained righteousness by faith, which is exactly what God wanted, but Israel did not obtain righteousness because they didn't, excuse me, because they pursued it by law, by human effort. They thought in just trying to obey the commands all in their own power that they could make it to God. And it didn't work. Um, they did not have faith. Now let me say this. There is a 100% correlation between election and faith. I think both Calvinists and Arminians could agree on that. That those who are elect are those who have faith. That's just always 100% of the time the way that it works. So there's this connection then between what God is doing in our lives and the fact that we have to put our faith in Christ Uh, in the gospel message. And let me just walk through quickly some verses in Romans that say just that about faith. Romans 1.17 says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Then Romans 3.22, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And the word believe is just another word for faith there. Then Romans 4.16 Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And then 9.33, at the end of our chapter today, the one who trusts in him, in Jesus, will never be put to shame. Trusts, again, another... When you see the words trusts or believe or faith in the New Testament, usually they come from the same root Greek word, which means to believe. And then one more verse, uh, although I was thinking I could have added Romans 10.9, which Delano mentioned to us about um, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But then here's Romans 10.13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Faith is key. Whichever side of the debate you come from, faith is key. Children of the promise are those who live by faith in Jesus. And here's my big idea then. There is only one way into God's family, through Jesus. Okay? Now it's interesting how Romans 9 says it, because Romans 9 kind of highlights this idea of election, but then even so at the end it comes back to this idea of faith. And they're all interrelated terms. Election, faith, adoption. Adoption would be a key one because what are we talking about in Romans 9? We're talking about those who are God's children. Who are God's children? Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, again, if you put your faith in Christ, it's because God has been working. Uh, God elected you and predestined you. Uh, But at the same time, it's our responsibility to put our faith in Christ. So, Romans 9 is about some being insiders, some being outsiders. Israel missed it because they attempted to earn their way into God's family through law. And remember what I said earlier? Human effort can never take the place of God's promise. The promise is that God is building his family and wants to include us as his children. We don't get into that through human effort. So what this means then at the end of my sermon is that there are two ways for us to live. One way, the wrong way, would be according to our human effort, to our own power, to our own ideas of what we think is right, to how we think that we should live. That's what Abraham did when he fathered Ishmael. That's what Esau did when he despised his birthright. That's what Pharaoh did when he wouldn't let the Israelites go. And look around you. All around the world, we see people who are living with that sort of mindset. What can I do? What do I want? What do I think is best? And then look inside of you. Do you ever see that in you? Do you ever slip into that thought process of, I want this. Maybe God doesn't want this for me, but I want it anyways, and I'm going to do it. Human effort will never replace God's promise, and we must not live that way. So the better way to live is by faith. Coming to Jesus Christ, trusting in Him, submitting our lives to Him, recognizing that He is Lord and we are not. And again, if we want to be part of God's family, that's the only way, through Jesus, by faith. And let me say this. Um, If that's the way that we come into God's family, that's the way that we should continue to live in God's family. You'll notice in our benediction verses in just a few minutes, and yes, I am almost done here, um, Colossians 2, 6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. We receive Him by faith. We continue to live by faith. That means that we don't try to take the, the steering wheel away from Jesus. He's in control and we are to submit to him and to follow him. So the difference between these two ways of life has to do with submitting by faith to God's ways. Trusting that he knows what's best, that he has good promises, and that we are to follow him. And either we pick our ways or submit to God's. So let's be people who continually seek God. Submit to him. Uh, seek him in his word and in prayer who worship him to get to know him better who spend time in his presence to let him change us so that we not only know his ways but also follow and submit to his ways and then one last thing very quickly about our passage today this entire chapter came from Paul's heart and his anguish for people who didn't yet know Jesus we should have that same concern for the lost In chapter 11, Paul tells us that he hoped to arouse people so they would be saved. In chapter 9, he even said that he wished that he could be cursed or cut off 
for other people. Do you care about people deeply like that? When you see lost people around you, do you, do you desperately want them to know Jesus? People are saved through faith in Jesus Christ and they become aware of how they can put their faith in Jesus Christ when they hear the gospel message. So let's be people who tell them. This summer we've got a wonderful opportunity to engage in that. We're having these summer evangelistic Bible studies where for six weeks we're going to meet together and get trained how to do these Bible studies and then from there we're going to go out around Fergus Falls, around the area to people you know and, and lead these Bible studies. I encourage you to be praying right now for God to open doors for those studies, for the gospel message to go forth. But do you care about people like that around you? If not, I just want to urge you to take your heart before God and say, God, change my heart. Help me to love the way that you do, the way that Paul did. God has done wonderful things for us. We should walk by faith because that's the only way into his family. That's the only way we should continue to live. And then along the way, we should help other people know what God has done for them. That's our act of worship, like Paul says in Romans 12, that we would live lives of faith, that we would worship God continually, that we would help others know him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for your truth in, in the this passage that we just looked at, even though some of them may be very difficult for us to understand, we thank you that you are God, that you are just, and that you love us, and that you have good plans for your children. And God, we pray that we would walk by faith in all that you have for us, always responding in faith to you and to your word and to your promises. God, we love you. Again, we thank you for sending Jesus, whom we again confess as Savior and Lord and believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead. Thank you for our life in Christ. Help us to honor you by continuing to live with him as Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.